0: Jesus Christ set aside His Godhead. we're in Galatians and we've called this from the beginning a letter of grace and that's a great word for Galatians grace if you want a quick way of remembering grace G-R-A-C-E God's riches at Christ's expense grace unmerited favor means we didn't earn it we don't deserve it. it comes to us as a gift from God and this letter has really been a letter of grace but after all these weeks, several months now, we come to the conclusion of the letter. Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church of Galatia and to the Christians there. So we're going to call today's conversation Closing Arguments. And now when Mark goes into the courtroom, you know he's an expert. He is a practitioner. He knows what he's talking about. I'm a pastor, preacher, teacher, a church leader, have no idea. But I'm going to jump in anyway and take a chance that Mark will correct me in a few days uh, with my terminology. But I think it fits. I really believe that in the context of these last few verses, we are in, as it were, somewhat of a courtroom setting. I think we've made the case throughout this conversation that Paul is an attorney in his own right. He's a lawyer. And not just with regard probably to the law of Moses, but from a larger context, he's able to represent himself And to argue his case, and I really think this letter is presented in that way. And certainly as you see these closing arguments, I think you'll see that Paul is making his case and bringing home the point. In fact, as we begin in Galatians chapter 6, notice the first word that he uses, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So already here is a transition in the conversation. That word see, interestingly, if it were translated in the original language of the Bible, that would be something like Jesus saying, behold. Like, pay attention, look at this. See this? Paul uses edite, it's an imperative, so it's got a little more force than than just behold. Like, anybody want to see this? Paul's saying, hey, you, look at this. This is important. It's a signal. It tells us that perhaps Paul is bringing us now to the conclusion of the matter, and in such a way that he really wants to drive the point home. Now, notice that Paul says, I'm writing. I'm writing. You say, well, who was writing before? Well, in a sense, Paul was writing by virtue of an assistant or, or a scribe perhaps, someone, of, someone who's helping him. He's dictating the letter, someone's writing it down. But in this particular moment, Paul takes the pen from the assistant, sits down at the table and begins to write personally. Now, that's not all that unusual. In fact, Paul has done that several times before in several different letters, the letter to the Thessalonians, the letter to the Corinthians, uh, it say, I'm taking now, I, I'm writing with my own hand. So, so that's not that unusual when Paul says, I'm writing to you, or that he says, I'm writing to you with my own hand. That's not all that unusual. He's done that before. But this is what's interesting. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So he's writing, and he's writing with his own hand, and he's using large letters. Interesting how the the Greek sort of plays there. It's actually, see large letters to you I'm writing or that I write. Large letters to you. Large to you letters. So what's he doing? What's with the large letters? Some people have said, well, Paul's losing his eyesight. There is a reference, I believe, in Galatians 4 where Paul mentions the fact that someone might give to him their eyes, which could be an indication that maybe Paul is struggling with vision. So he's writing larger letters. Could be true, don't know. Probably not the reason this particular point that he's using large letters. Could be if some have suggested that his hands just don't work like they used to. Either because he's a tradesman and he works with his hands. Or maybe because he's been persecuted, even crucified. And perhaps there are damages. He's, he's injured. Probably speculation. I think probably the better way to see this is for emphasis, for emphasis. Paul's writing with his own hand and using large letters. Think of this in terms of perhaps all caps. Do you know what when you're writing, when you're typing, when you're sending a text, do you know what all caps means? Emphasis. Now I'm going to hit pause because I want to minister to you today. I want to help you today. I want to give you something your grandkids are going to thank me for giving you today all caps let's think about this when you see the word hello how would you say that word say it with me hello Hello. very simple but if you put it in all caps what are you saying hello Hello. force emphasis yeah Uh, let's try it again if you say in typing what say it with me yeah now, uh, that could be I, I didn't understand or I didn't hear you properly. What was it you were saying or, or, or what are you trying to say? But there's another way to type this in a text or in an email that I want you to see you could say it like this. How do you say that? What? what? So it's what or what? It's a difference. You're communicating something completely different if you aren't careful by using those both. For example, no way. Say that with me. No way. Oh, really? I was like, tell me. Really? No way. Or... we got it no way ain't gonna happen over my dead body no way it's a totally different communication because you put it in all caps trust me your grandkids are going to thank me for telling you to stop yelling at them (laughs) every now and then I'll get an email or a text message that somebody's either inadvertently or intentionally perhaps hit the all caps button and you know what that sounds like when you're reading it yelling so Paul's not yelling but he wants to make the point with force and clarity so he's writing for emphasis with really large letters it could even be that as this letter is being read the person who's reading the letter could turn the letter around and say see so that wherever you're sitting in the room of those who are listening to the reading of paul's letter to the church of galatia you could see for yourself the letters paul is using to write these closing thoughts for this final expression of grace. I think we're right in calling it Paul's closing argument. So today I want you to join the jury pool and be selected to serve on the jury. I know that's a nightmare for most of us. But there you are. You are now in the jury box. You're a part of the decision makers. You're not the judge. You're not on trial. You're just there to listen and to weigh the evidence and to make the best decision you can with the information the evidence is presented to you. So I'm going to ask you to make a decision here in a little while because... That's what you have to do. You have to make a choice. Between two opposing sides that we've seen throughout the course of this letter, and I want us to jump in here and first to consider who we might call the defendants. The defendants. Uh, Paul is not the defendant. The gospel is not on trial. But there's a group of people, we call them Judaizers, you've heard the term, and they've come to Galatia after Paul uh, planted this church. And they are troublemakers, agitators, they're deceivers. In fact, they have distorted the gospel. And Paul has put them, as it were, on trial. And in this closing argument, he's going to summarize the case against the defendants. And what do I mean by that? What what, what are these defendants advocating? What's the problem? Well, uh, it's a salvation, they say, by means of circumcision and the law of Moses. Uh, that's how you get saved they said it's not about grace it's about the law and the rituals and the routines and the traditions and the customs of the law primarily the act or the ritual of circumcision that's what they're advocating you say well uh, this isn't then this is now and that's really not an issue for us now so do we just take this whole letter off the table well of course not Because in our context, we would just have to start seeing circumcision in the law of Moses more as the difference between law and grace, legalism and grace. To take that a step further, we might even say this is more than that. It's about merit or what we do versus favor, the unearned favor of God, which is grace. So what the defendants the Judaizers the agitators the troublemakers are saying is grace is not sufficient God's grace for you is inadequate for you you still need to check a few boxes now in the Acts chapter 15 we call the Jerusalem council the question was asked and answered do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians and the answer was no we shouldn't add any burden to them that we ourselves couldn't carry the council said they said there's a few things here that if you could be mindful of will greatly help the unity of the church both Jew and Gentile but no we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves it is the gift of God not of works so that no one can boast that was a clear message from the Jerusalem council to all the churches and along come these folks who say no no no, no hold on you want to be a Christian Jesus the Christ you want to follow was Jewish He was observant to the law of Moses, so must you be. You need to be circumcised. You must follow the law of Moses. Well, that was their case. And so what they focused on, and the real problem with their message, is it was about what you and I must do in order to be saved, rather than what God did to save us. Our works, plural, versus God's work, singular. The real question is, did Jesus meant what he said when he said that word to Telestai, it is finished? Or did he actually mean finished for now, but there'll be more work for you as you begin? And the Judaizers pretended, believed, and shared the supposed answer to that question. Oh yeah, there's a lot more you have to do. Oh yes, Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and raised again on the third day. We don't dispute that. See, there's always enough truth in a lie to be believable. And they were just simply saying, but there's more you have to do to finish the unfinished work of Calvary. It's not about what God did. It's about what you do. And here's what we think you need to do. Could have been anybody. But that's the real heart of the message. That's really what they were saying. So Paul launches into his case against the Judaizers, the agitators, the troublemakers, the gospel distorters. He's going to level five accusations against them. And I want you to know Paul is not being nice. You say, well, nothing new. A chapter or so ago, he said he wished that they would all be more than circumcised. <laughs> so there's nothing in Paul that wants to play nice with these folks. He's getting to the heart. Some of you are just now starting to laugh. You just now got that joke. It's a, uh, it's a... Uh, thank you Uh, so so this really gets to the character of who these people are not just to the message that they're preaching first he says and by the way he's going to lay lay five accusations against them first he says they're very persuasive I'll start sort of in the middle of verse 12 but let me read the whole verse it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised that's what they're doing and only in order that they may be Uh, may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Well, there are three accusations there, but I want to start with the middle one because that's really at the heart of the issue. They're trying to force the Galatian Gentile Christians to become observant to the law of Moses beginning with the act of the ritual of circumcision. Force doesn't mean uh, against their will or their wishes. That's not what the word means. It's a strong word. It means to compel or to use uh, a sort of a moral superiority Uh, to to force by guilt or coercion as it were in action that they may not otherwise take they're compelling them forcing them as it were to be circumcised so they're very persuasive Uh, in that word force uh, you you would see something of the nature of of a slick sales presentation they've got it dialed in they've got it they say it just right they say it with such poise and charisma and it makes such sense They've got this argument, and they are presenting it in sort of a way that makes you really feel a sense of, well, I must do it. I've got to do it. They are very persuasive. Paul's not denying that. They are great talkers. They've got a great sales pitch. You you might remember that Paul says, I never came to you that way. I I never came to you with eloquence of speech. I never came to you with this great pitch. I just came to you as an expression of the power of the Holy Spirit of God, and I preached the cross to you. Keep in mind the message of the cross in this era, in this context, was not a politically correct message. The cross was shameful. The cross was cursed. You say to someone, Would you like to follow a guy who died on a cursed tree as a cursed individual? The average person would say, Are you nuts? Are you crazy? that was the message of the cross it was offensive more on that in a moment but they had somehow figured out a way to pull back from that and present their argument in a way that lets you sort of off the hook they were good sales persons they're very persuasive Paul also said secondly it's all about the show don't forget because notice again in verse 12 it's those who want to make a good showing really important before that word uh, pros it's right here in the Greek this this is a clue to To really what's happening here it's a face thing they put on a good face they put on a good show they're parading about they want everybody to see this is all about what's on the outside and what you can see with the natural eye it's all about the show and by the way you should probably be suspicious when you get the sense that somebody's just about what everybody else thinks of them it's a clue it's a a note of caution that This person just seems to be strutting about, hoping everybody's paying attention to what they're doing and how they're doing it. And that's what these folks do. They just want to make a good showing. It's all about the show. Thirdly, he said, and this really gets to the heart of the matter. In fact, this Hina clause, notice right here in the English it says, and only in order that. Well, that's right here. This is, Hina is the uh, in order that for the purpose of. And monon's just solely, Paul says, look, let's get right to the heart of it. There's one reason. There's one real problem here. They're great talkers who make a great show, but at the heart of the matter, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the sake of the cross or for the cross of Christ. This may is a strong negative, no persecution, no. So what have they done? what's the accusation really what Paul is saying is is these people are afraid or ashamed of the cross of Jesus because as I mentioned it's a shameful implement it's a shameful object you would wear a death symbol around your neck today we wear the cross because the cross has been redeemed as it were as an implement of redemption not just shame which by the way was our shame not his And Paul says, these folks have figured out that if they preach the cross, then a whole lot of heat's gonna come down on them. See, it's okay if you're still holding to those old ways of doing things, to that old system, to that old philosophy, to the old laws of, it's okay, that'll clear you. If you just keep saying circumcision and the law, circumcision and the law, you're gonna escape a lot of persecution. But if you say, That the law was good and it had its day. But Jesus has come. And the cross is a fact of history. It's a dividing line in all of history. I know one particular scholar, I can't call his name, but he used the term fissure. It's a splitting in time. It's a a no going back. The cross came. And, And the cross meant that we are no longer under the obligation of human effort or merit according to the law we've been set free from that obligation by the grace of God in Christ Jesus who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so we live on this side of the cross if you preach that message what you're going to be saying to folks is that was good in its time and its place it was a tutor it was the guardian the law was it's necessary to the point of the cross but the cross changed everything when you say that oh my goodness the fire falls and these folks didn't want anything to do with the cost of the cross. They wanted to go back to an easier day, with an easier message, to a, an easier, a more easily acceptable message. And, and to the Jews, and and even to the Jewish Christians, and I use that with the you know air quote things because I don't know if a person who says, oh yeah, Jesus is great and wonderful and we love Jesus and he, he's amazing and he's a great moral teacher and, and, and a leader and, and he did a lot of good things. But as good as Jesus is and was, it's more. You've got to do X, Y, Z, whatever X, Y, Z, A, B, C is. So what they're saying is, is, is Jesus is great, he's just not enough. And the reason I use air quotes around Jewish Christians is because I'm not sure that that's a Christian thing to say or certainly not an understanding and clarity of what the message of the cross really is. These people said, I don't want anything to do with the persecution that will surely come if I say out loud in public, the cross of Jesus has set us free. They're just simply ashamed of the cross of Christ. And I make this point especially here because it's Paul's point that Hena Clause is really important and calls our attention what they really want only in order that no persecution they want an easy road they want a level path they want the applause of the people even at the expense of the message of the cross fourthly Paul says simply they're hypocrites And, and this is almost comical wouldn't you expect this of Paul wouldn't you expect him to say for even those who were circumcised even those who were circumcised do not themselves keep the law. In the original language, the construction here is really interesting. It's sort of like a "ude" or ude not, not, they keep it themselves. What he's saying is, is uh, you know the ones who are advocating the law and, and the rituals and the rules and the routines, you know those people? The law, they don't even keep it. They don't even observe it. They don't even check all the boxes. It's just another way of saying they're hypocrites you're listening to. These people that are persuading you with their slick message. These people that are telling you, hey, you don't have to worry about that whole persecution and cross thing. There's a way around that. Can I just tell you something? They're hypocrites. They want you to do something they themselves aren't doing. By the way, Paul could say this with expert experience. Paul was a Pharisee if anybody knew the impossibility of keeping the law Paul knew that's why I said earlier in Galatians that look here's how it works it's an all or nothing proposition it's all or nothing Galatians 5 3 I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law because that's the way this works folks remember what grace plus anything is something else grace plus anything is not grace that's why this isn't all you you can't say well I believe you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves it's the gift of God but here's a list of things you have to do to either gain salvation or keep your salvation that's grace plus something that's grace plus works you make anything a work and add it to grace you've disqualified or nullified or set aside the grace of God so what these people have said is, is hey, you got to be circumcised and you've got to keep the law of Moses. That's just simply a way of saying there's a system of human effort and man-made merit that you have to rise to in order to be saved. That's grace plus works. That's not grace. And of all people, Paul knew the problem with that is, is you're putting them under the weight of the entirety of the law of Moses, every single line, all of it. And Paul's saying, the very ones telling you what you should do aren't doing the things they're telling you you should do. It's exactly what he's saying. They're hypocrites. And finally, notice this. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire, and by the way, in that word desire, there's a little hint of, of bad character. This is an unhealthy, unholy, unrighteous desire. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh you know what Paul's saying about them hey they count you but do you count to them by the way uh, this is not about whether or not we should count how many attended class today that's that's, you know I've heard some very spiritual people say we shouldn't count David counted and look what happened to him yeah motive matters right if we're counting To boast or brag on ourselves which by the way this is just another way of saying they're boasting in themselves because what they were doing is they're going to these church conferences and these pastor meetings and they're standing up and saying you know how many we had on Sunday praise Jesus no that ain't what he means what he means is look at me and these people that are preaching this message and the Galatians are just eating it up because it sounds right it's so cool yes oh oh yes hold on a minute these people have an ulterior motive here it's not the glory of God and it's not for your good it's for their own glory they're boasting about you in the flesh so yeah they count you and, and I'd say that's the play on words we can we can think about here is it's, it's okay to count people as long as people count does that make sense you can count people but if people don't count then you're just counting for your own glory it's your pride and and your ego or your selfish fleshly ambitions that cause you to count people the question is do the people count we can count people if people count but if it's just for the sake of boasting in our numbers and how many people we had on Sunday how many people are at my bible study and how many people listened to what I said and did what I told them to do well that's an accusation Paul makes against the Judaizers the agitators the troublemakers the distorters of the gospel the deceivers And Paul's really getting to their character here, isn't he? He's getting to the heart of what is really going on. These people could care less about you. They're going to enslave you. They're going to drag you back under a system of effort and labor that's pointless and that they themselves don't even practice. And you know why they're doing it? So they can go back to their little huddles and brag about how many converts they've made to the old way. How many people they have re-enslaved, caused to fall back under a system of human effort and individual merit. So let's summarize the case against the Judaizers. They're very persuasive. Just know that it's all about the show. At the heart of it, they're ashamed of the cross. Let's just be honest. And they're hypocrites. They really don't care about you. So when they count you, it's not because you count. It's because they're going to tell people that they converted you their own glory now let's turn the page and let's get to the next part of the conversation which would simply be the plaintiff i suppose if paul is a plaintiff i think we can see him in that way then we would consider this in the sense firstly that paul the apostle was not first an apostle he was saul a pharisee so keep in mind here that this is not a person who doesn't have an understanding of what it is to be circumcised and to live under the law paul was a pharisee he was one of the best trained by the best exhibited the best of behavior a zealot if you will a fanatic if you will but you remember that life-changing experience he had on the road to Damascus what happened to him he met Jesus hang on to that so an ultra-religious fanatic who knew the law and was observant to the law to the very best of his physical, natural ability to the degree that this Jesus was an offense to him and the message of the cross was offensive to him and he was going everywhere he could to do everything he could do to wipe these people off the face of the earth, to remove the memory of Jesus of Nazareth from the minds of Israel. That was his mission until he met Jesus. And do you think that Paul began a reformation after the road to Damascus? Or is there a better word? transformation Paul met Jesus and he became Paul the apostle of Jesus sent one apostle the ones being sent the sent one he became a a representative of Jesus he became a missionary and an evangelist and a church planner and boy we could add to that list of spiritual resume we could say he was persecuted you remember he was shipwrecked You, you know he was rejected he was ridiculed he was stoned he was beaten this is the Paul who could preach the message of the law better than any Judaizer ever thought he could. But Paul said, I've heard that, I've preached that, and I'm living proof that that is insufficient to, sa- to save us. The same Paul who could say, I met Jesus. I, personally, me, I met Jesus. And, and you remember what the Lord said to him? Saul, Saul, oh, why do you, what Jesus say? Why, why are you persecuting me? I don't think we have every word of that conversation. Perhaps we do, but I wonder if there might have been some, at least some thinking going on there like, who are you? What's happening to me? To come to the realization of the understanding that I'm actually in the presence of the Jesus I've been after. And the transformative work that began in his heart in that moment changed not only Paul's life, but it changed the world. changed the world because he met Jesus. Paul went from religion, and he was good at it, To relationship Paul went from doing works to trusting in the work of the one whose work was sufficient Paul met grace and was willing to say so long to the law that's who we're talking about and so his message if we were to say what was Paul's uh, advocation. What, what was he saying? Well, he was preaching the true gospel in the cross of Jesus Christ based on the grace of God, justification by faith, and freedom. Hello. Freedom in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's message. And we're contrasting here between the the, the, the words of the, of the Judaizers, the troublemakers, and the words of the message of Jesus, of Paul, which was the message of Jesus, the cross of Jesus here's how Paul did by the way Paul doesn't need to say five things he's just going to say two drop the mic walk off stage I would do that except it's tied to me it'd be kind of hard to do verse 14 but so we're we're clearly now shifting in our conversation from from what about those people and what they've been saying and what's really at the heart of the matter what are their motives it's a character issue but far be it from me may you know it? may strong no God forbid absolutely not not gonna happen never kind of work may <laughs> no far be it from me to boast because they boasted and by the way in the wording it says they boasted in the flesh of the Gentiles of the Galatians but at the heart of that was simply boasting in themselves Paul says, Far be it from me. No way, I'll never do that. I'm just going to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is somewhat of a shocking statement given the nature of the cross in Paul's day. The cross is just not something you brag about. Maybe if you even say the word cross, you whisper it. You don't stand up in a marketplace and start preaching about this implement of shame and death. The ultimate worst way to die possible for the worst criminals known. You you don't just get up in the marketplace and start preaching the cross of Jesus. We think that's... to us, in our culture, that's no big deal. But let me tell you, when you stand up in Paul's day, in Paul's time, in Paul's context, and you say, it's the cross of Jesus that saves us and sets us free. And the crowd goes, what? This guy's lost his mind. Who would say such a thing? Who would be proud of such a thing? Who would boast about such a thing, Paul says? Me. <laughs> you know why? It's all about the cross of Jesus. Jesus. It's all about the cross of Jesus. It's all about what happened there on Calvary. It's all about what Jesus did for you and for me. It's all about what God was doing in orchestrating that event and putting His one and only Son, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. It was all about the demonstration of the holiness of God and the justice of God, of the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. It was all about the cross. Paul says, I will boast in, I will glory in, I will celebrate, I will preach the message of the cross. Because there is where Jesus died for me. That's what I'll boast in. By the way, Paul had plenty to boast about. You know that's true. Paul could boast with the best boasters in the world. (laughs) He could put these Judaizers to shame with his resume. Don't you know? I mean, think about this. Uh, Paul is the one who said, I I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees regarding the law. I was blameless and, and on and on. But you know what the cross did for Paul? Two things. For Paul, the cross is where he saw himself for who he really was. Don't miss that. Let me quote Pastor Avery, don't miss this. The cross is where we see ourselves for who we truly are. Not good little boys and girls who went to Sunday school and vacation Bible school and prayed a sinner's prayer and have been great Christians our whole lives. Who sing in the choir, no offense to the singers in the choir, who serve on a committee, maybe even who teach, I'm, I'm such a good Christian. At the cross what we see is a dirty rotten sinner at the cross we are brought low because we come face to face with who we really are and what we really are we are sinners whose sin has separated us from God who deserves the full weight of the fullest measure of Of the wrath of God for all of eternity you say me is he talking to me yes you and the only way I know to say it to you is because I say it to me because it's true of me it's true of you it's true of all for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and there on that cross where we see the weight of the wrath of God poured out on Jesus in his pain and agony we have to say to ourselves that's me there that's my sin On display that's my weakness those are my failures that's my putrid rotten self on that cross bearing the weight of God's wrath but praise God I'm not there alone Jesus is there he slides into place just at the right time and takes the full weight of the wrath of God on himself God had laid on him Isaiah said the iniquity of us all but don't skip the iniquity because at the cross Whatever reason we might have thought we had to boast or brag is removed. What do you have to brag about? What do we have to boast concerning? Who am I but a sinner saved by grace? What did I do but sin and suffer the consequences? What do I bring to this conversation? Sin. What do I have to offer? Nothing. What can I do if Jesus didn't do it all? Let me tell you something, folks. If it's a 99 plus 1% thing, you know, Jesus did 99% of the work, I've got my little 1% to do, I'm, I'm lost. I'm telling you right now. All my righteousness is filthy rags. The best I have to offer, even in the smallest of quantities, won't get me there. it's tainted and infected by sin that's what I see when I look at the cross is I come to the end of any arrogance or pride or ego or self-congratulations possible for all my goodness oh my goodness look at the cross and see your goodness it's just sin but thank God that's not all Paul saw when he saw the cross that's not all you should see because there on the cross is the love of God for sinners God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us hold both of those intention the sinner there on the cross paying the penalty for his sin oh but wait that's not a sinner that's a Savior who for the love of God has given his life in the ultimate way for people who would reject him, who didn't love him, who spit on him and cursed his name. For those people, for these people, Jesus, I see the love of God. I see therein the grace of God at work and in full display, I see the mercy of God. Oh, I see the justice of God, so I know God is just and good, and whatever He does is right, but I see there the wonderful, matchless, incredible, and all sufficient love, grace, and mercy of God on full display for me to say, Wow, God, go Jesus. You don't look at the cross and say, Woo, look what Jesus did for me. Wrong emphasis. You look at the cross and say, I am blown away at what Jesus did for me. Jesus is the reason we boast. The cross is the reason we glory and celebrate the work of God on Jesus on our behalf. Paul says, look, I haven't boasted about you. I haven't bragged about you. I haven't done anything in this whole conversation that's been about me. My whole purpose in this whole conversation is the glory of God on display in the person of Jesus on the cross where he died. That's all I got to say, folks, Paul says. Because there on that cross, everything changed. Everything changed. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There was a death on that cross. It wasn't just the death of Jesus. It was Paul's death. Paul said, I died to the world, to the things of the world, to the powers of the world, to the philosophies of the world, to the desires of the world, to the rewards of the world, to the pleasures of the world, to the applause of the world. I died to all that. And all that has died to me. That is to say, Paul says, I've I've lost all my former attractions. I've lost all the allurements of this world. I've I've lost interest in, I have no more desire for anything this world has to offer. Because I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. That cross, let me tell you something. Wasn't just something that happened some time ago. That changed everything. It changed everything. It really is that dividing point. You've got all of this... Teaching and learning and and visualizing and and trying to understand and what we might call the shadows But something happened on that cross when Jesus was finally and most fully revealed through his death, burial and resurrection That changed everything because while oh Abraham and and, and Moses and and King David were all looking forward to the cross The cross is the stopping point for all of that and the starting point for all of this You and I are way down here on this side of the cross But we are tied to the cross as surely as as Noah and and Abraham and and Moses and King David. We are tied to that cross because, in the midst of human history, the cross of Jesus was nailed down as a separation between all that was and all that is to come. That changed everything. It changed everything. Paul says there was a death. Death is the end of it. But because Jesus was buried and raised again, it was the beginning of it. That was Paul's message. For by grace you've been saved. This is not works of the law. Not rituals and routines. By grace you've been saved. Maybe make make this note, uh, uh, jot this down. In fact, uh, let let me show it to you. Colossians chapter 2. You want to see this. Verse 16. You're going to see this if I can make this work. If I can, I'll just quote it to you. I think I'm going to quote it to you. Oh, there it is. Here it is. You ready? Look, Mark has already highlighted this for you. Let me do it again. Let no one judge you or pass judgment on you regarding food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The things we do. Good things in their time. You understand? Good things in their place. With purpose, meaning. These are a, what? These are a shadow things to come the substance belongs to Christ so on on this side of the cross it's a shadowy existence now that doesn't mean a negative thing we think oh shadows are bad no it it, it just means there was something casting a shadow if someone were to come around the corner and just before you see who it is you see their shadow what do you know someone's coming you don't start talking to the shadow hey 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 you don't like get down and try to hug the shadow shake hands with the shadow have a conversation it's a shadow it tells you something that there's a substance there's a someone who's casting that shadow hey someone's coming around the corner Let's see who it is. I don't know. The shadow is not all that, you know, particular. I I don't see features. I can't see facial expressions. I just see something's coming. Oh, but the substance of the something is Jesus. So what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 2 is don't get dragged into, into everything that was for its time and purpose a good thing that told you some better thing is coming. The substance is Jesus. It changed everything. Changed everything. And Paul says, I'm not going to boast in or brag about anything ever except the cross of Jesus. Uh, Pause. Because that's the gift of God. Not a result of my works so that no one can boast because you know if we could, we would. Imagine that coffee conversation in heaven, day one. So, how'd you get here? Oh, let me tell you. I was a Baptist. I went to Champion Forest Baptist Church. I was a member there. I'd been baptized in the water. I walked the aisle, was baptized, joined the church, taught a Sunday school class. Went to Tuesday Fried Chicken and Friday Night Hymn Sing. Never missed one served on Serve Saturday, gave to the church financially. Always tried to be a nice person, never tried to hurt anybody. Tried to be a good person. Let me tell you the number of ways I was a good person. Can you imagine that conversation in heaven? What a joke that would be, wouldn't it? Because you know we would if we could, but we won't because we can't. Because the only one we can boast about, the only one we can say, oh, wow, let me tell you, is not what I did, but what Jesus did. That's all that's going to matter. That's all that's going to matter. I can hear that conversation going, well, i got to tell you, I sure understand how I'm here, but I ain't so sure yet how you're here. (laughs) I won't read all of this to you, but you know this passage. Paul's telling us his resume and all the reason he has to boast except for this. I count everything as loss none of it matters none of it means a thing none of it's worth a thing in light of all that Jesus has done for me it's all about the cross and the cross changes everything and Paul says let's get really to the heart of it for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision it's not to say it didn't have its place in its time and its context but we're beyond the cross now Jesus changed everything. The cross changed everything. So now it's no longer about what you do on the outside. It's about what God does on the inside. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But what counts? A new creation. What counts is not what we do on the outside but what God does on the inside. This is what matters. This is what really counts if you want to add up in this weighing of the evidence if you want to get all of it and stack it up sort of on the scales of justice and try to weigh it out let, let, let me just tell you what outweighs everything the cross of Jesus and the change that it makes in your life that's what changes everything I want to ask you some of life's most important questions the most important questions are not Where'd you go to church? What'd you do there? Were you a good person? Though, don't get me wrong. I think going to church is really important. Thank you for coming to church today. I think being a good person is expected. I mean, good gracious, it's the fruit, not the root. It's the fruit. But if you're not a good person, be one. And the best way to be one is to let the one who is good be good in and through you. Life's most important questions. Are not measured by what we see with the natural eye or what others can write down as a list of reasons why or why not we might make it to heaven. You know what the most important question is? Do you have a religion or do you have a relationship? Paul had a religion, but on the road to Damascus, he had a relationship. The Judaizers, religion. The Gentile Christians in Galatia, relationship. You know what Paul says? Why in the world would you walk away from a personal relationship? with the Jesus who died for you to set you free, to go back under the law and the rules and the rituals and the routines in some way to somehow deserve the gift that he's already given you by grace in Jesus. Why would you go back to the shadows of religion when the substance is relationship? This is the question I have for you today. Do you have religion or do you have a relationship? I'd ask you this question, have you met Jesus? I'm not asking if you know about Jesus. I'm not even asking if you believe in Jesus. The demons believe and tremble, James says. But the real question is, is have you met Jesus? Have you come to the place of understanding that on that cross, Jesus died for your sin, was buried and raised again? And knocks, as it were in Revelation, Billy Graham famous for saying, he knocks on the door of your heart and if anyone will open the door to him, I'll come into him and sup with him or have fellowship with him. Know him. Do you know Jesus. I'll tell you some of the most troubling words in all of the Bible are in Matthew chapter 7 especially in verse 23 when Jesus says depart from me you workers of iniquity for I never knew you you know who he said that to religious people who could brag about their religious activities didn't we haven't we weren't we yeah but who are you which means all that you did as a religious person apart from a relationship with God through Jesus, was of no purpose or meaning or value. Do you know him? Have you been born again? Very religious person, Nicodemus said to Jesus, what I gotta do? And Jesus said, you must be born again. The new birth. See, this is an example of what the... the, the Judaizers were trying to sell to the Gentile Christians in Galatia was as a proselyte to the Jewish faith, you'll be a new person. You'll have a new birth. Jesus says, you already got that. Why are you buying a second dose of what you already have? You already had that. You're already a new creation if you've been born again. And here's the real question I would ask for all of us, who, even us who can say yes to one, two, and three. Here's number four. I think Paul would ask this. Has he, is he changing your life? Is there a work going on in your heart? Is something bubbling up and working itself through, out, and over you to the world around you? Is he st- say, well, I'm 80 years old, preacher. The die is set. I am who I am. Then why are you still here? Because if God were done with you, you'd be dead. You're still here because God still has something to do in you, on you, and through you. And let me tell you, if you, if you can't say, let me tell you something, I, I've been on the potter's wheel lately like never before, or I can tell you time reached, don't. don't I, I'm so glad you got saved as a tender young pup at the age of nine. But friend, that's 50 years ago. Hasn't God done anything worth saying, telling, sharing in 50 years? What about last week? What about yesterday? What about today? Because we can say the cross is all there is to brag about and it changes everything so it's the only thing that matters then it ought to be still making a difference in our heart and in our lives. Wouldn't you say amen to that? Wouldn't you agree? So we come then to the benediction. And as for all who walk by this rule, this principle, this way of living, this way of thinking, peace and mercy be upon you. Which is to say, if you aren't willing to believe this and to walk this way, you're not going to have peace because you've yet to experience the mercy of God. And upon the Israel of God. Don't have time to get into the debate about what that means. But I think the expression here is, is that there is mercy and there is peace upon the true Israel to be sure whether he means here ethnic Israel as in Romans 9, 10, and 11 or whether he means the church in the sense that we're all one body, both Jew and Gentile in the church. I don't know the answer to that, but I I get the sense that what Paul is saying is is if you want to be a part of the family of God, if you want to be a part of this blessing, if you want to walk in peace having experienced the grace and mercy of God, then this philosophy, this teaching, this doctrine is the way for be are justified by faith and we're saved by grace through faith and it's the gift of God that you must receive by faith it's ruler standard and then Paul says and I like this is the mic drop from now on let no one cause me trouble it's a, a word for beaten I've been beaten <laughs> quit beating on me Quit wearing me at. Paul is finishing the conversation. It's going to be a case closed. I rest my case. Don't give me any more trouble. I bear the marks of Jesus. What do they got? <laughs> they got fancy clothes. They got nice cars. They say it just right. Look at me. I'm a wreck. I bear the marks of Jesus. I'm a marked man. Look at me. Look at me. Paul says. It's a a statement, I, I believe, of authenticity and of clarity and credibility and authority. I think what Paul is saying is, hey, don't mess with me. <laughs> Look at me. I'm a man of Jesus. I bear the marks of Jesus in my body. And finally, as he rests his case, from now on let no one cause you trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The marks of Jesus and finally here's the word the last sentence the entire letter the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit brothers amen and that's the word unmerited favor the favor of God as the gift of God in the person of Jesus Christ whom we meet at the cross lastly and quickly what do we do grace accept it accept it say say yeah receive it and you will be delivered my friend from the works mindset mentality a performance-based approach to religion hoping trying desperately trying to measure up to somehow impress a holy and righteous God who will never be impressed with our best, but is always impressed with his best. Can I just suggest to you, my friend, that grace will set you free and let you live the abundant life that God has for you in Christ Jesus and deliver you from the shame of the sin that separated you or separates you from God. Accept it. And when you accept it, just understand, it's just this. It's just this simple. Grace plus anything is not grace. The gospel plus anything is not the gospel. Accept the full weight of the grace of God in all that it means. Just simply say yes to the grace of God. Secondly, rest in it because there is peace in the grace of God. And finally, pass it on. I could start a whole nother lesson right now on this one aspect because listen to me carefully. It's one thing for us to have accepted the grace of God and to be at peaceful rest in the grace of God but then to turn to our neighbor and say, hold on a minute. Uh, I've been noticing. I'm not too sure. I don't think you measure up. And I would say pass it on because it's the most wonderful message to be able to say to somebody, God loves you so much that he did all the work to set you free and to see you forever in his heaven. Grace. We should give it away as it was given to us. So it's time to go to church, but I want to pray for you and bless you as you go. Father, we go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that there isn't anything else but that what it is is all sufficient. In our darkest, in our weakest, in our worst state, you died for us, Jesus. You were buried and raised again to give us life, to give us relationship, to give us purpose and meaning, to give us joy and to give us heaven and eternal life. Dear Lord Jesus, help us to receive your grace as freely as it's offered, to rest in it and to share it for the good news story of grace that it is. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.